0: The very place where God dwelt with his people, where his glory came down and rested. The tent of meeting that moved with the people of Israel before the Jerusalem temple was constructed. Today we talk all about the tabernacle. Welcome to the Shalom Y'all Ministries podcast. I'm your co-host, Adam Kime, along with my good friend, Dr. Daniel McCabe. Daniel, it has been hot here in Texas lately. How about there in Alabama? Well, it's hot. It's just not like Texas. But the
1: odd thing about it all is that I miss the Texas weather. I miss the hot weather. I'm not sure if I want the 115, but <laughs> I, I do miss the hot weather. But it's it's hot here, but but not like there.
0: Yeah, well, I'm still preferring Texas summers over Minnesota winters any day.
1: I would think so. Yeah, I'd probably take that too.
0: (laughs) Well, we here at Shalom, y'all, believe that a walk through the land deepens your walk with the Lord. And our mission is to teach and encourage those who love the Bible, the land of the Bible, and the people of the land. What if you could walk in the very places that Jesus walked and see the land that he saw? You can. Reach out to us for more information on how you or your group can experience the land of Israel firsthand. Now we first begin with what we like to call mini topics of other things before jumping into our main subject of the tabernacle. Now they may or may not actually be all that mini sometimes, but Daniel, what do you have for us today? Well, Adam, I'm
1: thinking about weddings. It's definitely that time of year, and as a full-time pastor for 30 years, I have officiated at my share of weddings. Mm -hmm. And usually at the end of the ceremony, I say something like, I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. Adam Kine. And turning to the groom, I add with a twinkle in my eye, you may kiss the bride. (laughs) But... Jewish weddings don't typically end with either a formal pronouncement like that or a scripted kiss. Instead, the couple turns toward the assembled guests, and the groom stomps on either a light bulb or a glass wrapped inside a cloth, obviously for safety reasons. Sometimes the bride will even stomp on a second glass. It's quite common for the couple to choose a colored glass or colored glasses so that all the broken pieces can be saved and later turned into art, such as a mezuzah for their home. I really like that. So why do young Jewish couples stomp on glasses at their weddings? You'll hear different explanations, for example... I've heard that it serves as a reminder that the world is still broken, even on the happiest of occasions, or that it symbolizes the fragility of life and relationships. And therefore it serves as a reminder that the newly married couple should treat each other with great care. I've even heard it said in jest that it's the last chance for the groom to put his foot down in the relationship. (laughs) Some couples still kiss following the breaking of the glass. And then the wedding guests applaud and they cheer Mazotol for congratulations as the newly married couple begins their recessional. It's a really fun tradition. Did you and Jonna do anything unusual or fun at
0: your wedding, Adam? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if it's really nothing really unusual, but uh-huh. I like to remember that at our reception, we had a chocolate fountain. Oh. And with a lot of fun things to dip into it and stuff. And it was pretty cool. And I was thinking when, you know, when the reception began, I'm like, I'm not really going to have a chance to go over and enjoy that thing because we're mingling with everybody and you're super busy. So on the spot, I made an announcement and said, we we will not kiss if you clink your glasses. If you want us to kiss, you have to go to the chocolate fountain, get some dippins and bring it over. For us, and, and that served two purposes. For one, I got to kiss my bride often, and, and for two, I actually, it was a sneaky way to get people to bring chocolate to me, so it worked out well.
1: Well, there's a lot of reasons why I wish I have had known you longer than I have, but that's definitely one. I wish I had been able to attend your <laughs> wedding and uh, enjoy the chocolate fountain, but I'll just be satisfied with the friendship as it
0: stands. How about that? Sounds good. Well, for my mini topic today, I, we're talking about the tabernacle. So I will briefly trace the geographical travels of the tent of meeting itself, where it was. Now the, taberm- the tabernacle moved from place to place until the temple was built by Solomon in Jerusalem. Now, whenever the cloud of the Lord was taken up from the tabernacle, Israel would pack up and move it to a new spot. So, during the wilderness wanderings, basically the book of Numbers, it's not like the people were constantly walking all day, every day through the desert. They would settle in a location for a while until God instructed them to move on by his glory rising up from the tabernacle itself. Anyway, the tent was first constructed while Israel was at Mount Sinai, when the glory of the Lord first filled it and then wandered for about 40 years from place to place in the region of Sinai, in the wilderness regions called Paran, Zin, and Kadesh at Mount Hor, and around the region of the Edomites, and other specifically named locations in the book of Numbers. But let's get into Israel. Before crossing the Jordan River, Joshua and the Tabernacle were encamped at a place called Shittim on the plains of Moab, just opposite the river from Jericho. You know, the Jerichoites could see Israel camped out for a long time. Now, after conquering Jericho, the tabernacle was set up at Gilgal, which would have been relatively close to Jericho. That was the home base of operations during the conquest of Canaan. Now, the Bible does not list for us every single movement of the tabernacle. We do know from Joshua 18 that it was set up at Shiloh, where it would be during the period of the Judges. In fact, it was there, according to the Talmud, for 369 years. Eli and Samuel ministered there, and we can take you there too, dear listener, if you travel to Israel with us someday. 1 Chronicles 21 mentions that the tabernacle was in Gibeon when David purchased the threshing floor of Arauna, which was the future site of the temple. Now, after the temple was built, the purpose of the tabernacle was fulfilled, and it was never erected again. Now, you can do a simple Google search for images for tabernacle to get a good idea of what it looks like, even some live replicas of it that people have recreated. So, to summarize, the main locations of the tabernacle would be Sinai, Kadesh, Shatim, Gilgal, Shiloh, and Gibeon. You can look those places up on a map. But if there's one place above all that you can associate with the tabernacle, it would be one of my favorite places in Israel to visit, Shiloh. And I hope to see you there someday, and we can all have some coffee and baklava together where God himself dwelt with his people. Daniel, what is this week's trivia question?
1: Okay, let me take you back uh, a month or two. I guess it's a little over a month now to the last day of my most recent trip to June and to Israel in June. So, on this last day of my June trip, our group took a Friday morning walk up Jaffa Road Mm. where I paid 25 shekels for Kube Hamusta. Kube Mm. Hamusta. So what did I buy that morning for 25 shekels? Was it a a lock for my suitcase, a cup of broth, a wallet for my son, a cheese Danish, or five postcards? So 25 shekels for kube hamusta, a lock for my suitcase, a cup of broth, a wallet for my son, a cheese Danish, or five postcards. Think that one over and we'll have the answer for you later in the podcast.
0: A lot could be said about the details and activity of the tabernacle. Now, we could devote an entire episode to each aspect. There is so much to explore about it, and I encourage our listeners to spend time in Exodus 25 to 27 especially to learn more detail than what we can cover today. Now, for now, I want to focus on the priests at the tabernacle. Who were they and what did they do? Simply put, God said to Moses in Exodus 28, 1, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. These were chosen as the mediators between God and Israel. The tribe of Levi as a whole was selected to take care of the tabernacle in general. They set up, took down, and transported it. God commanded in Numbers 3, 6-7, to 7, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. But it was Aaron himself, a Levite, and his own descendants that would serve as actual priests. Now think of this. All priests were Levites. But not all Levites were priests. Now The priests were supported by the tithes and some types of offerings that were brought to the tabernacle. They also had special garments that they wore, with the high priests being the most ornate. You could read about their specific trappings in Exodus chapters 28 to 29. These clothes would set them apart from the rest of the people for dignity and honor. The priests took the sacrifices from the people and offered them up to God. It was a major part of what they did. Leviticus chapter 15 describes five major categories of offerings. We see burnt offerings, where the whole animal was consumed to atone for the offerer's sin. We see grain offerings, given to God from the offerer's crops, with a portion going to the priests. We see peace offerings offered in peace as communal celebration with God. We see sin offerings given to purify from unwitting sins. And we see guilt offerings given to atone for certain intentional sins. Now, more can be said about unwitting, intentional, and even high-handed sins as we read in the book of Numbers, but that's a topic for another day. God also wanted the priests to bless the people, saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We see that in number 6, 24 to 26. Now this was very important to God as he adds in verse 27, So they, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now, importantly, as I've stated, the priests functioned as mediators between God and Israel. They offered up the sacrifices on behalf of the people that brought them to the tabernacle and later to the temple. But the priests also had the responsibility of teaching the people God's law. So, how could they have been mediators since Paul said so clearly that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? Well, what he means is that there is one ultimate, truly effective mediator. Hebrews 8 shows us that the Levitical priesthood was a shadow of the true mediator, Jesus. In fact, the entire tabernacle was a shadow of heavenly things. We see that in Hebrews eight five. But consider this. We are told that we believers in Christ are also a priesthood. Peter says... That we are a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. That's in 1 Peter 2.5. In verse 9, Peter writes that we are a royal priesthood that proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a blessed responsibility. We are like mediators. Not that anyone needs us to access God. That needs to be made clear. Someone only needs Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father but through him. So we do not correspond directly to the Levitical order of priests. However, God uses the church, you and I, to teach people about him, to proclaim the gospel, to draw people to him. Scripture urges us to make spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Read about this in Hebrews 13. So that we can thrive in the ministry of reconciliation that he's entrusted to us as his ambassadors. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. So consider then how important it is for us to maintain a good testimony and to lead lives that honor God so that we can be faithful and effective as that holy priesthood.
1: Well, let's next take a tour of the six pieces of furniture found at the tabernacle. The, the bronze altar, the bronze labor, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant. We'll look at them in that order. You know, you could see the flames and smoke of the bronze altar long before you arrived at the courtyard of the tabernacle with your animal for sacrifice. In fact, at God's command, the priests never distinguished its flames, never. Whether you opened your tent curtains to let in the early morning sun or exited your tent for a late night walk to stretch your legs. A simple glance to the center of the camp quickly confirmed that the priests were still on the job made of wood and covered with bronze to shield it from the heat of the fire. This four and a half foot high, seven and a half foot square altar received endless offerings of lambs and goats and bulls as worshippers daily sought quote atonement for the soul, Leviticus seventeen eleven. Perhaps the permanent flame of the altar suggested to others then, as it does to me now, that God is always ready to receive us when we approach Him contritely with the right sacrifice. Obviously, for, obviously for us, it's coming in the name of Jesus.
0: You know, I think of Psalm fifty one, where David says, "You know, a broken spirit and a contrite heart." Mm-hmm. Those sacrifices, God will never turn away.
1: Yeah, good point. Uh, then there's the the
0: bronze labor
1: before entering the tabernacle building itself, or before administering a sacrifice at the bronze altar outside in the courtyard. The priests were not only expected to wash their hands, but also their feet, and this suggests to me that they served barefoot at the tabernacle, which would make sense given that both Moses and Joshua were instructed by the Lord to remove their sandals before approaching his holy presence in Exodus 3, 3-5, and of course also in Joshua 5:15. Just as the priests washed continuously while they served, we too must wash as we serve the Lord. Sin offends the holiness of God, so be right with him always. The aging apostle John said it best when he wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, First John 1, 9. Then third is the table of showbread. Now let's leave the courtyard of the tabernacle with the bronze altar and the bronze labor, and let's enter the tabernacle building itself called the Holy Place for a look at its golden furnishings. Inside on the right, there would be a wooden table made from acacia wood, but it's overlaid with pure gold. And on the table itself, 12 loaves of bread, arranged either in two rows or perhaps two stacks, I'm not sure, but one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And every Friday afternoon, the Levites presumably baked the bread, and every Sabbath, they set out 12 fresh loaves. Only Aaron and his sons were permitted to eat the bread, and while some assume they ate the bread throughout the week while in the service of the tabernacle. Perhaps they ate the bread only after it had been removed after the, or excuse me, at the end of the week and replaced it with fresh bread. We're not quite sure, but how fitting that Jesus would later instruct his disciples to pray for their daily bread in full confidence that God would supply all that they needed while in His service. And then fourth, the golden lampstand. You know, inside the tabernacle on the left side stood a one-piece, solid gold, seven-branched lampstone. We're not sure how tall it was, but it was fueled by olive oil rather than wax, and it provided the only light in an otherwise windowless room. So the seven branches were decorated with ornamental knobs and flowers, and the seven bowls, which held the oil, were shaped like almond blossoms, so it was obviously very pretty. The lampstand symbolized the Word of God, which the psalmist describes as a lamp to our feet, Psalm 119-105. And also prophetically, I believe, it symbolized the Lord Jesus, who described himself as the light of the world in John 9-5. And then fifth, the altar of incense, just straight to the back of the room, just the side of a massive curtain stood the altar of incense, made of acacia wood again and overlaid with gold. It measured one and a half feet square and three feet tall, like the bronze altar in the courtyard and the lampstand just a few feet away. The altar of incense burned continuously, filling the room with a sweet smelling mixture of spices made exclusively for use there at the altar. No other incense mixture was to be burned on threat of death. A warning which two of Aaron's sons foolishly failed to heed in Leviticus ten one through two. And then throughout scripture, if you look, you'll you'll find this amazing connection between incense and prayers. Aaron burned incense twice a day in the tabernacle, first in the morning and then at twilight. So perhaps it would be a great habit for great habit for us to pray each morning and each night in the same way. And then lastly, the Ark of the Covenant. Behind the curtain at the back of the room, the Ark of the Covenant stayed hidden from view in a separate space called the Holy of Holies. No one dared to enter that room or lay eyes upon the Ark, except once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest alone stepped behind the veil to sprinkle blood on the top cover of the Ark as instructed by God. This small room marked the earthly location for the dwelling presence of God among his people. There's no doubt that God wants to communicate with his people and to receive them to himself, but his holiness requires that the sin of men be covered before approaching him, and even then it must be done exactly as he requires, as a sign of submission and faith. The ark measured two and a quarter feet, both wide and high, and three and three quarters feet long, big enough to hold the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and even Aaron's budding rod. The ark itself was made from acacia wood, again, overlaid with gold. Its top covering or lid, known as the mercy seat, was made of solid gold and decorated with two winged cherubim. For how we need God's mercy mm. and how blessed we are to receive that mercy through the work of of our savior jesus christ each furnishing of the tabernacle points clearly to the lord and i hope our tour of it has helped you to see that clearly today okay so it's time to revisit our trivia question from earlier i asked about A walk I took on the last day of my June trip to Israel. It was Friday morning, and our group walked up Jaffa Road, where I paid 25 shekels for a kube hamusta. So what did I buy? Was it a lock for my suitcase, a cup of broth, a wallet for my son, a cheese Danish, or five
0: postcards? What do you think, Adam. Well, 25 shekelim, huh? Yeah. So I'm thinking about (laughs) $6.25. I'm trying to be crafty about this. (laughs) Yes. Because I don't know. I'm trying to remember the word cheese. And I'm thinking cheese Danish. And I could go for cheese Danish right about now. This would be kind of a pricey cheese. I'm cheese Danish. That's it. You're going to go with cheese Danish. Yes. Well, you're not Right. No. Uh, yeah,
1: you missed it. It's, it's, the answer is a cup of broth. Oh, a okay, so cup of broth. Yeah, what makes the broth a kube, I learned, is that it's made with semolina dumplings.
0: Ah, okay. So we
1: stopped off at a little soup stand. I know it was Friday morning and it's June, but it just looked good. And I was asking the girl there what kind of soups they had, and they had kubes. They had different kind of kubes. They had beet kube and pumpkin and okra and hummus. Mm veggie kube and I was like, Well what's a kube? And she says so, well it kinda has dumplings but not exactly and I was like dumplings that sounds fantastic. Mm. That's what attracted me to the Kube Hamusta in the first place. And then hamuts means sour in Hebrew. And it did have a slightly sour flavor to it, but it's really quite nice. So if you know sour isn't quite your thing, there were some other choices you could make there. But I would definitely go back and pay my 25 shekels for kube ha-musta.
0: All right, you and I, next year in Jerusalem, kube, and some of our listeners along with
1: us. I'll show you where it's at. Sounds good. Well, before we close today, let me remind our listeners of two upcoming fall events. First, starting September 18th, we'll begin another weekly online Bible study that will meet Mondays from noon to one o'clock Central Standard Time we'll be studying the book of Micah. There's no cost and it's come and go because we know you're busy, but there'll be more details about that on our uh, Facebook page. If you pay attention to that, if you follow that, but just kind of stay tuned here and we'll tell you about that as well. But starting September 18th, uh, the book of Micah on Mondays noon CST. And then second, We are planning another trip to Israel for November 6th through the 17th of this year, 2023, of course. The cost for a minimum group of six would be approximately $4,200 plus food. Now that price already includes a general estimate for airfare, insurance, housing, site fees, and transportation. So that's largely your overall cost the larger the group, the more the expenses come down. But let us know. It's still early, but our podcast listeners are getting the scoop on both these events that are open for registration starting today, starting right now. So simply send us an email at shalomyalministries at gmail.com. shalomyalministries no apostrophe, no spaces. shalomyalministries at gmail.com to notify us
0: of your in- interest. That's it. We'll take it from there. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this look into the tabernacle. What a gracious God to make a way that his people could dwell with him. But no longer is there a place that we must access to commune with the Lord. Thankfully, because of Christ, we can worship him in spirit and in truth wherever we are. Shalom, y'all. Shalom, y'all.